0: He nā e tēnei nā
1: te reo o Aotearoa. Kia ora, no mai haramai, ki tō tātau au. Huruhuri. Hello and welcome to our changing world. Ko Clark and tēnei. I hope you're enjoying your summer whatever you're up to. Ane papa au ki te mati. This is the summer science series. And today we bring you an episode from one of the other amazing podcasts produced right here at RNZ. The Aotearoa History Show tells the story of New Zealand and its people from its geological origins right up to modern day. And in this first episode of the second season, William Ray and Mani Dunlop bring us the backstory to one of the major conservation issues that Aotearoa faces today.
2: This episode of the Aotearoa History Show contains some strong language. Please listen with care. It's 1857 and 22-year-old Watson Shannon is trudging along the Nobby Range in central Otago. He and his brother Alexander came from a big sheep farming family in the southwest of Scotland. They were looking for land to do the same thing in New Zealand.
3: As the brothers crested the ridge and looked down into the Manuhirikia Valley, Watson realised that found the perfect spot. He turned to his brother and said,
4: Here is the country we are looking for. A land well-grassed and watered, a very land of promise.
2: To start with, things went well. Just like Watson said, central Otago was perfect sheep country.
3: Booming wool prices helped make Otago and Southland the economic heart of New Zealand through much of the 1860s and 70s.
2: But a few decades later everything had changed. The lush fields of Tussock turned into barren
3: dust bowls. Sheep starved in their hundreds, and farmers were driven to despair. Many abandoned the land altogether.
2: One witness said as it was as if some great deluge had swept vegetation from the land.
3: It wasn't a deluge of rain or snow, Instead, it was a horde of voracious animals, hundreds of thousands of them chewing their way across the landscape.
2: So, what were these devastating creatures?
3: Uh, What's up, Doc? That's right, the animal which brought New Zealand farming to its knees was the rabbit.
2: Call William Rayahoe.
3: Kumani Dunlop Aho.
2: No Mai Kite Aotearoa History Show.
4: Smoke bombs have been thrown onto Eden Park. Smoke bombs, flares,
0: in an attempt to come out of the field.
3: Last night, a most grievous
1: railway accident took place at Tangirai. We are marching
4: to Parliament and no more land to be sold.
2: The rabbit plagues of the 19th century were one of the greatest economic and environmental disasters in New Zealand history.
3: They turned thousands of hectares of farmland into desert and sucked up millions of dollars in taxpayer money.
2: And they encouraged people to introduce new predators to Aotearoa like stoats, weasels and ferrets, which are still devastating native wildlife today.
3: Not the best decision of all time. No. So let's start with how rabbits got here in the first place.
2: Just like pretty much every other mammal in New Zealand, they hitched a ride with humans.
3: The first introduced mammals were the kiore and kuri, Polynesian rats and dogs, brought to Aotearoa by the ancestors of Māori about 700 years ago. These animals had a heavy impact on New Zealand's native animals and plants, but things were only about to get worse.
2: In 1769, British Navy Lieutenant James Cook and his crew arrived in Aotearoa, and his first expedition introduced a bunch of new animals.
3: Some were stowaways, like ship rats. Others were accidental escapees, like cats, which had been brought along to keep the rats under control. There were also goats, sheep and pigs, which were deliberately released into the bush or gifted to Māori.
2: But not all these animals managed to establish themselves in Aotearoa. They were just too delicious. When Cook arrived back in New Zealand on a second voyage, he learned many of the sheep and other animals had been eaten rather than kept for breeding, and
4: complained, Thus, all our endeavours for stocking this country with useful animals, likely to be frustrated by the very people who we meant to serve.
3: James Cook, along with many other Europeans of his time, were very into this idea of spreading what they thought of as useful animals all over the world.
2: And we're not just talking about farm animals.
3: No. New Zealand's colonists were also very keen on importing animals for hunting. That's why animals like deer, pheasants and ducks were brought to these islands.
2: Many of the people who introduced these animals did so out of a kind of egalitarian ideal. Back in the UK, hunting was a sport for the elite – The idea was that in Aotearoa, anyone could become a hunter.
3: And that kind of worked right. These days, New Zealanders of all backgrounds enjoy hunting deer, pigs and other introduced game animals. Hunting is also a major drawcard for international tourism.
2: People even tried to import other, more exotic game animals like moose. If you believe the stories, there are still a few moose hiding out in the South Island today. Although no one's found any proof. (laughs)
3: Game animals were mostly brought by so-called acclimatisation societies. These were kind of like government-supported clubs which raised funds to import and release new animals and plants. Partly,
2: they were keen on introducing animals for hunting and farming, but another big focus was pest control.
3: Thing is, many insects and invertebrates like caterpillars, slugs and snails had hitched a ride on ships, and some of those bugs were a major problem for early colonists, munching away their crops.
2: Just listen to this story from historian James Drummond, writing for the Department of Agriculture in 1907. The country
4: was smitten with blasting plagues of insects, which crawled over the land in vast hordes. A settler who was driving his dray along the road drove through a colony of caterpillars which happened to be crossing the road at the time. They were present in such countless numbers that the wheels of his dray ran in a puddle caused by the crushing of the insects.
3: Another time, Drummond says a swarm of caterpillars managed to stop a train.
4: An army of caterpillars, hundreds of thousands strong, was overtaken by a train as the insects were crossing the rails to reach a field of oats. Thousands were crushed under the wheels of the engine and the train suddenly stopped. It was found that the wheels had become so greasy that they revolved without advancing as they could not grasp the rails. The guard and engine driver placed sand on the rails and a start was made. It was found however that during the stoppage the caterpillars had crawled in thousands over the engine and all over the carriages, inside and outside.
3: Part of the problem was that while many native birds like the kōtari or kingfisher were voracious insect eaters, they tended to steer clear of humans, which left crops defenceless.
2: So, to keep the bugs under control, settlers imported all kinds of insect-eating animals. That's how hedgehogs, sparrows, thrushes and all kinds of other European critters made it here.
3: All this animal introduction was a bit chaotic. You had all the different acclimatisation societies across the country, plus individual colonists would bring animals with them or have them delivered.
2: One of the most prolific importers was Governor George Grey. He set up Kawo Island in the Hauraki Gulf as a kind of private open-air zoo, stocking it with all kinds of exotic plants and animals, including zebras, emus and monkeys.
3: In fact, there were so many monkeys, Grey encouraged visitors to shoot them to keep the numbers under control.
2: But anyway, somewhere in this chaotic mess of animal importing, the first rabbits were brought to Aotearoa.
3: Now we know it happened sometime in the 1830s, but we don't know exactly how, where or why. Historian Joan Druitt wrote this in her book, Exotic Intruders. The records of the introduction of
1: rabbits are unclear, mostly because once introduction became an embarrassing topic, no one was anxious to claim responsibility.
2: The American writer Mark Twain put it even more bluntly when he visited Otago in 1895. The man who introduced the
1: rabbit there was banqueted and lauded, but they would hang him now, if they could get him.
3: It wasn't actually just one individual who was responsible for introducing rabbits. A lot of different colonists brought the animals to Aotearoa over the years. In their eyes, rabbits were the perfect animal to bring to a new colony. They were easy to carry on ships, you could eat them and sell their skins. So useful.
2: But if there's one thing rabbits love, it's making more rabbits your average rabbit starts breeding at three months old and it can produce a new litter of six or more baby bunnies nine times a year. So, in ideal conditions, you can go from two rabbits to a million rabbits in just one year.
3: And it didn't take long for things to get out of control. As early as 1866, parts of Southland were overrun with rabbits and they were steadily moving north into Otago. It turned out the lower South Island was a rabbit paradise, covered with tussock grassland. Perfect rabbit food.
2: There wasn't too much rain, so their burrows didn't flood.
3: The only native predators were weka and kahu, the native hawk, neither of which put a dent in their exploding numbers. In
2: 1867, a group of worried farmers wrote to the Otago Acclimatisation Society warning against more releases. But the society kept releasing more rabbits until the 1870s.
3: We have no idea how many rabbits were in New Zealand by the 1870s. Tens of millions, a hundred million, there were far too many to count.
2: The newspapers were full of farmers worrying about rabbits. One correspondent in Winton wrote this in 1876.
0: Incredible as it may appear,
2: I have seen a field of 40 acres completely denuded of grass and
4: thousands of those four-footed pests hopping about its surface. Throughout Southland, rabbits swarm. In fact, are a plague, ruinous alike to crops and pasturage.
3: Some farmers reported huge numbers of sheep starving to death or becoming so weak they couldn't stand.
2: But rabbits were actually only part of the problem. To understand this, we have to wind back about 500 years.
3: Before humans came to Aotearoa, Otago and Southland were mostly covered in forest.
2: When Māori arrived, much of that forest was burned down.
3: Some of these fires were probably accidental, others were lit deliberately to make it easier to hunt moa and other large birds
2: fire also helped clear land for growing aruhe, the root of the bracken fern, which was an important part of the Māori diet before Europeans introduced potatoes and other crops.
3: By the time European colonists turned up, those ancient South Island forests had been replaced by tussock grasslands.
2: Then Pākehā colonists came along and set those grasslands on fire. Colonial farmers set fire to their land because sheep find it easier to eat the new growth which shoots up after a fire.
3: But some farmers burned their land too often and overstocked with too many sheep, meaning the tussock didn't have time to recover.
2: So these plants were barely holding on as it was, then rabbits came along and finished them off.
3: With the tussock gone, there was nothing to hold the topsoil together. It blew away in the wind and washed away in the rain.
2: In just a few decades, massive areas of productive farmland in Otago and Southland had turned to desert.
3: According to one story, when a government official visited central Otago to see the damage, he said, The country is not worth saving. Let the rabbit have it.
2: Many farmers abandoned their land. Others held on. At the height of the plague, one Otago runholder recorded his yearly produce like this.
4: Two bales of wool taken from live sheep, five bales plucked
2: from dead sheep, six bales of rabbit skins.
3: At first, farmers caught and killed rabbits themselves, but by the 1880s, most turned to professional rabbit catchers, or rabbiters, many of whom were former gold miners.
2: Rabbiters had a tough life. They'd ride over the grasslands, setting traps, spreading poison and gathering their catch, often more than a hundred rabbits a day. By nightfall, every one of them had to be gutted, skinned
4: and hung out to dry. As one rabbiter called Lou Warlich said, By the time you'd done all that, come back at night, cooked your meal and fed your horse and tied your dogs up, and did the little bit of washing up you had to do in a tin basin or whatever, the day was gone. It was a lonely life. The horse and dogs were all the company you had.
3: Lots of rabbiters were single men living alone in ramshackle huts or tents. But
2: some started families. Doris Jackson and her husband lived in a rabbiters' camp in the Lindus Valley with two preschool-aged children.
3: Their hut was two and a half by three metres, with a corrugated iron roof and canvas walls. Inside was an armchair Doris made out of packing case timber and sugar bags stuffed with tussock, plus a bed just big enough for the four of them. Doris later said, We lived in primitive conditions, but it was always home, always callers coming.
1: In between work, we had many happy times, attending country dances, etc. We had good health, were a family, had good friends around us, and we were progressing
3: financially.
2: In fact, the Jackson family made so much financial progress, they saved up to buy a small orchard.
3: And they weren't the only ones making a living from rabbits. Rabbit skin hats and gloves were super popular in Europe and North America, and by the 1890s, New Zealand was exporting 17 million skins a year.
2: Rabbit meat was valuable too. Factories were set up all over Otago and Southland to process canned rabbit meat. And after refrigerated shipping was invented in 1882, we exported frozen rabbit meat as well.
3: From the perspective of the working poor, the rabbit plague was kind of a good thing. It provided a lot more jobs than sheep farming did, especially in the Long Depression of the 1880s and the Great Depression of the 1930s.
2: Farmers sold the rights to kill rabbits on their land, so they made money from rabbit skins and meat too.
3: But for those farmers, the profit from rabbits never outweighed the losses in wool production and the cost and damage to pasture. As a result, politicians were under constant pressure to find a solution to the rabbit problem.
2: Some New Zealanders demanded heavy fines for landowners who failed to get rid of rabbits.
3: But others argued these strict policies put unfair burdens on farmers.
2: Politicians built hundreds of kilometres of rabbit-proof fences.
3: But it turned out those fences weren't as rabbit-proof as they'd hoped. Rabbits just tunnelled under them.
2: The government lowered taxes on ammunition for shooting rabbits and offered bounties for rabbit ears.
3: But that just encouraged people to cut off the rabbits' ears and let them go. That way they'd get the money for the rabbits' ears, but the rabbit could still go off and make tons more baby rabbits, which meant even more ears to harvest.
2: This was a common theme in rabbit pest control. Sure, rabbiters would catch plenty of rabbits, but they were careful not to completely exterminate them. After all, if the rabbits vanished completely, so would their jobs.
3: The government was getting frustrated. In 1883, the Superintendent Inspector of Rabbits, yep, that was a title, Benjamin Bailey, told Parliament this.
4: No means of destruction have been devised or adopted that deals comprehensively with the pest. I see but one solution, and that is the introduction of their natural enemy.
2: By natural enemy, Benjamin Bailey meant things which eat rabbits. Farmers were constantly clamouring for predators to keep rabbits under control.
3: According to historian Joan Druitt, one animal dealer in Dunedin offered five shillings per cat to meet the demand.
1: The small boys of Dunedin had a heyday and the cats arrived in short order. These were sold to pastoralists, taken out onto the run and released, just as police were being bombarded with complaints from hundreds of pet owners that their beloved moggies were missing.
2: But cats alone weren't cutting it, so people started looking at introducing Other predators, particularly ferrets, stoats and weasels.
3: Eventually that proposal made its way back to Professor Alfred Newton, an ornithologist at Cambridge University in the UK.
2: And it would be fair to say Professor Newton had some reservations about this idea.
4: The proposal to send out ferrets or polecats to New Zealand, there to be turned loose has filled me with alarm and horror. What remains of New Zealand's native birds will absolutely and almost
2: instantaneously disappear. Many local scientists agreed with Professor Newton, and even some farmers thought he had a point.
3: But others argued the fears over introduced predators were overhyped, as one farmer said,
2: We look to Britain and find that notwithstanding the presence and numbers of foxes, stoats and weasels, lambs are reared, the birds of the air survive and the poultry of the farmyard are not among things of the past, so will it be in New Zealand. Nature has a method of preserving a balance amongst her numerous subjects.
3: What that writer and many others failed to understand was that Aotearoa was nothing like Britain. Professor Newton pointed this out in his letter back in 1876.
4: New Zealand's fauna is altogether ignorant of any enemy such as the ferret would be. And as you know, many of its birds, the likes of which do not exist elsewhere, are unable to fly. But
2: there was another argument. Many 19th century colonists described New Zealand's birds as Inferior to European animals, much in the same way as they described Maori as supposedly inferior to European people. They argued New Zealand's native animals, plants, and people were so inferior that any attempt at conservation was pointless.
3: For example, the Rodney MP John Sheehan said this in a debate over setting up reserves for native forest in 1874.
2: The same mysterious law which appears to operate when the white and brown races come into contact and by which the brown race, sooner or later, passes from the face of the earth, applies to native timber. The moment civilization and the native forest come into contact, that moment the forest begins to go to the wall.
3: Oh, that's so lovely to hear. <laughs> <laughs> John Shearn and others suggested the extinction of indigenous peoples, animals and plants was something beyond human control. They claimed it was the natural order of things, the strong replacing the weak. Need I say, they were completely wrong. Yeah. Really,
2: this was all about choices. The Maori population wasn't dropping due to some mysterious natural law. It was dropping in large part because people had chosen to take land from Māori and give it to colonists.
3: Mm -hmm. Our native forests weren't vanishing by magic either. Settlers were choosing to cut them down to make way for farmland.
2: And now people were choosing to introduce predators like ferrets, stoats and weasels, which they knew at the time would devastate native wildlife.
3: It might have been more comfortable for colonists to think of all of this as natural and inevitable, but again, that was not true.
2: And people at the time argued against this kind of fatalistic attitude, including our mate Professor Newton. You may say
4: that the New Zealand fauna is already doomed, and indeed I fear that the greater part of it will become extinct, but we know not which or how many of its
2: members may be preserved if some care or consideration be shown towards it. But that care and consideration was only shown by a minority of colonists. Many settlers admired New Zealand's native plants and animals, and some appreciated the culture of Aotearoa's indigenous people – But they weren't about to let that get in the way of what they considered progress.
3: So, in the end, conservationists like Professor Newton lost the argument.
2: Between 1884 and 1886, 4,000 ferrets, 3,099 weasels and 137 stoats were released into the wild.
3: The impact on rabbits is unclear. Some farmers reported huge success, others saw no change.
2: On the other hand, Professor Newton's warnings about the risks to native wildlife were spot-on. As the Otago Witness reported in 1918... In the Hollyford Valley, the weka, kiwi and kakapo were
4: almost exterminated. In the Makaroro Valley, these used to be plentiful, but since the advent of the stoats and weasels, they are very rare, and rabbiting tallies have not depreciated.
3: In the meantime, the impacts of rabbits on sheep farmers subsided, partly thanks to rabbit control methods, but mostly due to refrigerated shipping.
2: Refrigeration meant sheep farmers could export meat as well as wool, which offset the losses from rabbits.
3: The thing which finally ended the rabbit plague wasn't introduced predators or refrigeration. Believe it or not, it was fashion.
4: In the
2: 1940s, rabbit skin hats and gloves went out of fashion. With the sudden drop in demand for rabbit skins, New Zealand's commercial rabbiting industry collapsed.
3: At first, rabbit numbers went through the roof because nobody was getting paid to catch them.
2: But the collapse of the rabbit skin industry meant nobody was arguing that we needed to go easy on the animals to make sure there were enough rabbits around to meet demand. Suddenly the gloves were off.
3: No pun intended. Um, No
2: pun definitely intended there.
3: (laughs) And thanks to some technological leaps over the next few decades, the government had a whole lot more tools in their rabbit-killing arsenal.
2: Mostly these were new kinds of poisons, particularly 1080, which could be dropped from the air, and that vastly reduced the cost of control in remote areas.
3: The government also passed new anti-rabbit laws. They outlawed the sale of rabbit skins and meat to remove any incentive for rabbit farming.
2: In fact, it was illegal even to keep pet rabbits in New Zealand until 1980.
3: And this tough stance on rabbits worked. By the 1960s and 70s, areas of Otago and Southland, which had been reduced to wasteland, by the rabbits, started to regenerate
2: it would be nice to say everyone lived happily ever after. But not so much.
3: That never happens in these podcasts, William. The collapse of the rabbit population meant we suddenly had a whole lot of stoats and weasels roaming around with kai, nothing to eat.
2: So they increasingly moved off farms and into the bush, where they feasted on native birds.
3: And in the 1970s, authorities took their foot off the gas. The official policy shifted from completely eradicating rabbits to managing their population.
2: This turned out to be a really big mistake. Rabbit populations exploded and by the 1990s, New Zealand was facing another rabbit plague.
3: This time, a huge argument erupted about a new method of control, a deadly rabbit disease, Khaleesi virus.
2: The government initially refused to use the virus, so in 1997, a group of farmers illegally imported and released the disease themselves. As one said, For years, we'd been forced to stand by and watch as rabbits denuded our paddocks and turned them into a dust bowl. It was a simple choice. Get Khaleesi or go bankrupt.
3: And even though the release of the Khaleesi virus was a major breach of New Zealand's biosecurity laws, nobody was ever prosecuted.
2: For the next couple of decades, rabbit numbers plunged. But now, yet again, that's starting to change.
3: Today, increasing numbers of rabbits are immune to Khaleesi virus and populations are growing rapidly. In 2021, journalist Melanie Reid wrote this about a visit to one farm in Otago. The infestation is obvious, dozens of rabbits
1: hop about on the dirt, and it is just dirt. Some paddocks are somewhat protected, others are dust bowls riddled with burrows, forfeited entirely to the pests.
2: The History of Rabbits is a story of an animal which was supposed to be useful, but turned out to be anything but.
3: It's also a story of short-term solutions and long-term consequences. Consequences which are still playing out now, nearly a hundred years later. It's also about how f- colonisation is. <laughs> <laughs> That was Rabbits
1: and Other Pests from the second season of the Aotearoa History Show. There are another 13 episodes in this series, spanning a range of topics including epidemics, the musket wars and women's suffrage. And you can listen to all episodes by following the show on your favourite podcast app or on the RNZ website. There's also a video series which you can find on YouTube. The Aotearoa History Show is made with support from the Ministry of Education and is hosted by William Ray and Manny Dunlop. It's written and produced by William Ray, and Tim Watkin is the executive producer. Duncan Smith is the director, and the sound engineers are William Saunders, Phil Bench, and Mark Chesterman. Thanks so much for following the Hour Changing World podcast and for listening each week. Remember, if you ever want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter where we are at RNZ Science. Or you can email the show, ourchangingworld at rnz.co.nz. Our website is at rnz.co.nz ourchangingworld. Until next time, I'm Claire Concanon. Kia pai tō wiki.
0: Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.